Welcome to Hope for the Heart. We're back today looking at the book of Revelation, and we've been uh, working our way through and working our way verse by verse through this uh, exciting book. We're not very far into it, so if you haven't uh, heard the other messages, you can uh, listen to those. Uh, But following along today, we're in Revelation chapter 1, uh, verses 17 through 19. And then we'll get into chapter 2, and I will explain what this all is in just a few minutes. So I hope you have a a copy of God's Word, and you can follow along uh, as as I read these verses to you. Uh, Again, Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 17. The Word of God reads, And when I saw him... I fell at his feet as a dead man, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Write, therefore, the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which shall take place after these things. And then uh, I have already covered verse 20 last week. And so that's just giving you some information about the stars and the candle, uh, the lampstands, uh, referring to the seven churches and the messengers to them. So as we begin this tonight, I want to uh, recall for you the fact that verses 12 through 16 was a specific vision given. Uh, John sees the Lord. He turns to see the voice that was speaking to him. And we saw last week that Christ uh, is seen here through implication uh, and the meaning of what this is, that there's a much bigger, even, I know that's kind of a strange way to say that, but there's much more here than just seeing the Lord. There's also seeing the symbolism that is here and the meaning behind everything about this vision, from his appearance uh, to the clothing that he's wearing. And we, we saw from that that it's a picture of him in the midst of the church, working through the church uh, for such things as to empower the church, to intercede for the church, to protect, to speak, or to uh, have authority over the church. And this is his present ministry. This is what he's currently doing in the church. He's empowering us, interceding for us. He's purifying us, speaking to us, protecting us and radiating through us the reflection of his glory. And so we're going to move from that into an explanation of really the effects of this uh, vision. Uh, I'm entitling this message today, A Reaction to the Vision. And I think this is going to be a reaction that uh, was very, I think, expected. So as we look at this, there's only three things that I want to bring out today. One, there is things that I see in this passage that I think are worthy of mentioning. I know I only have about 30 minutes, uh, 28 to 30 minutes, and uh, so I can't cover everything, but I want to look at the the things that concern me. Number one, I see there's a concern in this passage. But then number two, there is a, a, a comfort in this passage. And then number three, there is a commission in this passage. And now, number two and number three, the the comfort and the commissioning are both commands. Uh, And so we're going to see how these commands fit in to what he is saying here today. So the first response is is, uh, understandable, I guess I could say. What John saw was absolutely overpowering. So the first effect of of this is, is, we'll look at it in verse 17. I saw him, 
meaning Christ, and I fell at his feet as a dead man. And what what a response that would be. So the first response is John was absolutely overpowering. Uh, this effect, uh, this vision was. So the first effect we could see would be that of a, a fear or a, a concern here. That I mean, is did this just kill him? Is he going to be laying there dead? Is he? Uh, how is this uh, vision affecting him? John's response was similar to Daniel's response back in Daniel chapter 10. In fact, that's the very first thing I thought of was how Daniel had an angelic visitor, a vision that was equaled uh, as far as being startling or, or, or traumatic for him in Daniel chapter 10, verse 7. Listen to how it reads this. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone, and I saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deadly uh, pale, and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. Boy, it's almost the same exact thing that Daniel uh, experience is what John experienced here in Revelation chapter 1. He was devastated. The blood rushed out of his face. He turned as white as a corpse, and he fell on his face in the dirt, shocked by the vision. Uh, and that's the way we would be. We would be shocked. And, and John is, is equally as shocked. He falls as a dead man, laying flat on his face. In fact, if you go back to Ezekiel, you'll find repeatedly Ezekiel was was uh, knocked over or shocked by the same kinds of things, by the power of the vision that he had. In chapter 1, verse 28, it says, As the appearance of the rainbow and the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, here it is, I fell on my face. The same reaction, he just falls down on his face. Chapter 3, verse 23 says basically the same thing. Chapter 9, verse 8, it came about as they were uh, striking uh, them that I, I alone was left and I fell on my face and cried out saying, Alas, O Lord God. You can go all the way through even chapter 43 of Ezekiel. Uh, verse 3, a similar response. In chapter 44, there's another similar response. And so we, we can see this all the way through as this kind of response, John saying he fell down as a dead man, and uh, you you look at this and you think, wow, that that is an amazing thing that happened to John, because this vision is so overpowering. It is a a tremendous vision, but with this vision is is the the, the fear, the shock that is there. It's it's almost as though the flesh. Uh, Imagine the flesh, you in your flesh. Now, John was in the spirit on, on that Sunday and seeing this, but imagine being in your flesh, your human body, and you see what he saw. I can't imagine what this would do to us. But there's a, there's a, there's a reason for this, because we remember now when John was, was with the other disciples and they were with the Lord, People weren't falling on their face in front of him. They were seeing and talking with him, probably around the, a fire or, or walking down a paths or walking into cities. And they were not falling on their face uh, in, in the same kind of response that we see with Daniel, Ezekiel, 
or Isaiah or or John here, but they they walked with him, and the reason they could do that then and can't do it in these appearances is because uh, Jesus was had his full glory veiled. It was veiled. Uh, so when when John is looking here at this vision, he is seeing the full revelation or the deity of Christ standing before him. Now, he had gotten a glimpse of this on the Mount of Transfiguration when his face shone like the sun and his garments were white uh, as no uh, no other kinds of white. For the most part, the Godhead of the Lord shined through the veil of his face with only an occasional softening light. But John is looking upon the unveiled glory of the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, no time on earth did he ever see him like this except the Mount of Transfiguration. This would be what his, this was his his friend. And to see him now in full glory had a tremendous effect upon him. I think what John is seeing here is the vision he saw uh, when he was here. uh, Excuse me. I think what he sees here while on this uh, island of Patmos and being called in the spirit is he is seeing the ancient of days that Daniel also saw. He's looking at God whose countenance shines like the sun. He's looking into the eyes of the judge of all the earth, the eyes that are a flame, like a flame of fire. He's beholding the very presence of the face of the great living God himself and his response is he falls to the ground like a dead man also there's wrapped in this that i wish we really had time to develop but it would take almost a book to develop this is that john fell as the dead man in the presence of the great god he he's whenever this happens it's as though the person who's experiencing this sees their own Humility. They see their own sinfulness before God. And as, as, as uh, uh, Chriswell uh, says, that this is a proper response. He, would, he, would, he says, I, I would have to say it is the right response, for it's the same kind of response that anyone had that the Bible tells us about in which they saw uh, the Lord of glory. In fact, we're going to see this kind of a response once again when we get into Revelation uh, chapter 6. You see just how powerful it would be to see the Lord Jesus Christ in full glory. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 12, John tells us, looking into the future, and of course when we get that far we'll explain this more, but there's coming a day in the breaking of the sixth seal uh, that there's going to be a great earthquake, the sun will become black as sackcloth, and the whole moon will become uh, like blood, the stars of the sky will fall upon the earth like a, a fig shaking, uh, f- figs falling from a tree. The sky will be split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up. Uh, every mountain and island will be moved out of their place. The whole universe is going to experience something. But then it says something most unusual in Revelation chapter 6. We have the response of what the Bible calls not even as people, but as earthlings, as uh, dwellers upon the earth. The kings of the earth, the great men, the commanders, the rich, the strong, every slave, every free, hid themselves from this vision. 
in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Fear. Yeah, they had fear. Yeah, they feared him greatly because, or they're going to fear him greatly because they see their sin in front of the holy glory of the presence of God. This is the reason John fell as a dead man, uh, because he saw himself. And uh, the people on the earth will, will experience the same kind of thing. Uh, Isaiah experienced this. In Isaiah chapter 6, when uh, when that story happens, and Uzziah had, had done a very foolish thing, he tried to move from being a king to becoming a priest, and invaded the sanctity of the priestly office. God gave him leprosy and killed him. And it was obviously the judgment of God. So Isaiah wants to find out what's happening because he wants to bring a message to the people. So he goes to the temple, and he sees in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 6 uh, that what went into the temple, and he said, when he went into the temple, he said, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted, and the train of his robe filling the temple. He sees God is still sovereign, even though Uzziah's death has happened, even though they have begun to feel the judgment of God. He sees the true, absolute sovereignty of God. God is still on the throne, is what that is saying. He is still sovereign. He's still ruling. He's still lofty. He is exalted and sees the blazing Shekinah glory in his vision Filling the temple where he is. It's as if God's throne appears in the temple and then fills it with blazing glory. Let me tell you something. When people go around and say they've seen God or they've seen heaven or they've seen this and that, unless they have these kinds of visions or these kinds of reactions, I don't think they have seen anything. But this was Isaiah's response when he saw and it's found in verse 5 of Isaiah 6. Woe is me, for I am destroyed. That's his response. Some versions say, I am ruined. Some say, I'm disintegrating. Uh, the verb means, I am going to pieces. I'm shattered. I'm devastated. I'm destroyed. That's what we are faced with when we see the holy living God. Listen to what Job said. I've heard of you in the hearing of my ear, but now my eyes see you. And do you... Uh, do you know what his re reaction was? His Job's reaction to the understanding of understanding and seeing God from what God revealed to him was, "I repent." Now, why is he saying that? Well, it's another way of saying, "God, don't don't kill me," because I think when we uh, were to see this, it, we would understand it. it. That's perhaps what we need. Uh, the flesh knows that it's sinful. So you go to the New Testament, Matthew chapter seventeen. And I talked about this just a second ago with the Mount of Transfiguration. He revealed his glory. They went up to the Mount of Transfiguration. He was transfigured before them. And here it is. His face shone like the sun. His garments became as white as light. That's almost a, a complete uh, work over of this passage here uh, in, in Revelation chapter 1. It's almost perfectly aligned with it of the appearance of christ in revelation blazing light brilliant as the noonday sun they again saw his glory and the veil was removed they saw the glorious christ and what was their response well in matthew chapter 17 verse 6 here it is they heard a voice from heaven 
This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when his disciples heard it, what did they do? They fell on the ground, face down, on their faces, and they were terrified. You know, it's absolutely amazing when you actually see what the Scripture tells us about people who have this kind of a vision, whether it be Daniel, whether it be Isaiah, whether it be Ezekiel, whether it be uh, Matthew, uh, 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 Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, or whether it be John in the book of Revelation, or whether it even be Paul on the Damascus Road. There is this uh, concern that the, the flesh just can't handle it. And so it falls as dead, which is what John says happened. But then there's a second thing I want you to see in this passage. Two, there is a, a comfort. Uh, number one, there's a concern. But number two, there's a comfort here. There is a comfort beginning in verse 17. It says, And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first, the last, the living one, and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. All of that, all of those words are meant to be a comfort. In verse 17, he says, uh, he laid his right hand on him, but you know, we've already seen his right hand in verse 16. His right hand held the seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And you say, well, how could his hand hold those, and yet his hand is picking up John? Uh, very easy. His hand held those and released them, and we're going to see that in chapter 2 that he placed the messengers at the church. His right hand is not tied up. I, 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 I say that because it's a rebuke against all these people who write these commentaries. They spend forever writing about that right hand. But he laid his right hand on me, John, saying, do not be afraid. Well, that's good news, isn't it? That would be assurance for him. Uh, this wasn't the same Jesus that walked with him in Galilee. This wasn't the same Jesus John had watched hanging on the cross. This wasn't the same Jesus he had eaten with and, and, and after the resurrection by the sea when they had breakfast in Galilee. This was the glorified, exalted Lord Jesus Christ of the church. He has seen this before, like we mentioned on, on the Mount of Transfiguration, but not like this. This is an amazing thing for him to be able to see. And when he's laying there uh, as a dead man and the right hand comes and touches him, it is a touch of comfort. It is a touch of reassurance. And all the people that, that I've mentioned already that saw God, people who saw the glory of God and fell on their faces, may have felt that they were about to, uh, to die like John probably felt that he was half dead already, there's a balance there as, as far as teaching the fear of the Lord and teaching the comfort of the Lord. And the balance is that, that there is the fear, but yet there is also the fact that God touches John. It is a touch where he is saying, don't be afraid. Literally in the Greek, it says this, stop fearing. Stop being afraid. This is why I said in the introduction that there is a, there's a command here. And the command is actually stop being afraid. And so actually he's, he's giving him a command to say stop being afraid. And by the way, it's a common biblical expression. Uh, first, God spoke to Abraham the same way. And I think seven times in the book of Isaiah, uh, and you find it in Joel, you find it in John's gospel, 
uh, like John chapter 12, verse 15, stop being afraid. And to be uh, exposed to this, uh, this kind of a vision, I can't imagine how frightening that would be. I can't imagine laying there in, in a desperate need to be comforted. And then he gives these words, I am the, the first and the last, the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. All those terms to identify Jesus and they identify him to John in a way that brings comfort. He begins by identifying himself as verse 17. Look at how he does this in verse 17. I saw him fell at his feet. He laid his right hands upon me saying, do not be afraid. I am. And you know, you can almost see the separation of this in the original language because you, you wonder, did John already, does he remember all that his life was at the time when Christ uh, was walking with the disciples through the incarnation? These very words he used to calm the sea, crossing over the Sea of Galilee in Matthew and Mark, uh, behold, I am, and then Stop being afraid. It's like he's saying, don't be afraid. I am is here. And who is I am? Well, I am is God. That's the person name for God. That's the same as Yahweh. And that's his name in, in the text. And we see it in, in Exodus 3.14. That's not only his name that speaks of his eternality, but that's his redemptive name as well. And so he's saying to him, don't be afraid. I'm here. And I can imagine how John must have felt as he is being comforted because God is reaching and touching him. He's actually touching him with his right hand and encouraging him. Actually, it's almost like he's lifting him up. And the same title that he's saying here, uh, which is a redemptive name, I am, uh, he's also giving him this. I am the first, the last, but the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Uh, again, it's the same title applied to Jesus at the end of the book of Revelation, where he says, I am Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. In chapter 2, verse 8 of Revelation, to the church of Smyrna, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, and when the Lord God in his glory touches a sinner... This is a touch of comfort. In a way, we've all been touched by this. We've all been touched by him. But then he says in verse 18, I am the first and the last, the living one. And the third indication, all of these indicate a deity. Again, it identifies Jesus as the God of all comfort, who is comforting John when he says, I am the living one. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You remember that in John 14, 6? Uh, no one comes to the Father but through me. John made it on the behalf of Jesus. He wrote that. And then in, in John chapter 1, verse 4 of the Gospel of John, he says, In him was life. But I just want you to know this. The living one is a title for God in the Bible. It is all through the Bible. In Joshua 3.10, God is called the living one. In the Psalms, 19 times he's called the living one. In, I, in Hosea chapter 1, God is the living one. You see it all through. And listen to this. It's, it's the God who touches the sinner is the God who is the living one who has life that's giving comfort. I can't imagine a more 
encouraging thing for John at this very moment when he's on the in the spirit on the Lord's day and he has been knocked down because of the shock of this vision that God literally touches him and lifts him up. And then he says this, I have the keys of death and Hades. That's the next designation he says, death, the keys of death and Hades. Well, what is that saying? Well, again, to get into all that he is saying here in these titles is uh, to probably write or to study, to give several different sermons or, or even a book. But death and Hades, they're synonyms. And some people always want to make a distinction between them, and uh, you can do that. Death is the, is the condition, and Hades is a place. Hades would be the equivalent of the, uh, the word Sheol that we find some 49 times in the, in the Old Testament. It's the place of the dead. He says, I have the keys. Well, what does keys represent? We see it in Revelation chapter 9. Uh, keys is brought up. We see it in Revelation chapter 20. Keys means access. Keys means authority. A key gives someone the power to open and close. And the living, exalting Christ says, I am the one who controls the door to death in Hades. I have the keys that open it and let people in. I have the keys to close it. I decide who dies and when. I decide who lives. What a statement. What does John have to fear if this is the one who's touching him and it is the one who is touching him? So these are all designations basically to encourage John. And again, number one, and in the outline is there is concern because he falls dead on his, like a dead man. Number two, there is a command or there's a comfort. Stop being afraid. But then number three in this passage is, is another thing that I want you to see. It's in verse 19. It's There is a commission here. We have number one, there's a concern. Number two, there's a comfort. Number three, there is a commission here. And this commission is is uh, the really the final effect. It's telling John to do something. One who has such an experience as John's had with the vision of the glory of Christ, who has received such comfort, is bound to be asked to do something. John, in verse 19, says, uh, when he's writing this, Write, therefore, this is what the, the commission is, Write, therefore, the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which shall take place. Uh, in other words, I, am a, I understand your fear, I understand you, the, the, the encouragement or the comfort that he's given you. It's almost like in this passage we, we could see it like this. John, get up, dust yourself off, and get to work. It is absolutely incredible. Get up and get to work. The vision should inspire, I think, uh, us to understand what this is really beginning to give us. This is He's being told to write about, well, look at what he's being told to. Number one, he's told, write the things which you have seen. And what that is actually saying is, write what you have seen. What's that? Well, you know, he just saw it. Write what you saw, John, the vision. That is part one of the Revelation, chapter one. Write it down. And then he says, number two, the things which are. That's the present age. That's what he's going to give us in this next section, which is the uh, chapters two, 
and 3. And then he says, the third thing, write also the things which shall take place after these things. That's chapter 4 to the end of the book of Revelation. So he's given us the outline. He's telling John, write these things, and this will be the outline. That's the future. So we can see that the things which are, are the things that are related to the seven churches of Asia Minor. We're going to see that that's the beginning of the church age, and then chapter 3 ends the church age, and then we see chapter 4 are the future things as related to the tribulation period. So basically he's saying this, Write your immediate past experience. Write the present revelation that I'm going to give you in a, a, a split second. And then write down what's going to happen after these things have happened. So John's commissioned to write basically a three-part letter, a three-part book. The vision you've just seen, chapter 1. The letters to the churches, chapter 2 and 3. And then the revelation, the future history, chapters 4 through 22. So all I want to do is draw out that the simple principle for you, uh, if you're listening today, is that anyone who has the opportunity to experience God, to see God, to fear God, to be assured by God, has the duty to pass it on. I think that's what John is, is writing for us here, that that duty is given to him loud and clear. Back in verse 3, we saw of Revelation chapter 1, we saw that the, you had to... You're told to read the book, to hear the message, and to heed the things written in it. And so here again, we're told the exact same thing. In other words, if you study the book of Revelation, you're going to see the glory of Christ. Because this is the revelation of His glory. And if, if you see that, and you're able to understand this, and God has called you and allowed you to see this, then we have a responsibility. It will reflect not only to you, but through you to others who do not know, others who have not seen. So you and I are here. We're in this life-changing experience as becoming Christians, and we're growing in our life in Christ, and we are to share that with the world. So I certainly hope that uh, uh, I didn't uh, mess a passage up too bad. Uh, there's so much here in verses 17 through 19. And then, of course, 20 was given to us last week. So next time, we're going to begin looking at chapter 2 to the angel of the church in Ephesus, I write. But I'm going to explain a little bit about the church and, uh, and see how all these seven churches fit into what the church actually is today and how it began then. And so I hope you're continuing with the study of Revelation. I hope you're reading and uh, using this. And uh, again... Thank you so much for listening.